0: Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest Fest for September 16th, 2021. The Our Patience is Wearing Thin edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C. I'm joined by my regular compatriots from New Haven, Connecticut of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. It is Emily Bazelon. Hello, Emily.
1: Hi. It's a good game show here this morning. Very exciting.
0: It is. A little bit. A little bit. And from CBS Sunday Morning from manhattan new york city john dickerson hello john
2: hello david emily hello america
0: and america we should note that we're taping a day early because of yom kippur so uh it may be that things things are slightly out of date by the time you hear this but hopefully not too much this week we will talk about president biden's sweeping new vaccine mandate is it legal and will it work Then the Supreme Court, the most august of institutions, the most supremo of courts, is it in danger of losing its legitimacy? We're going to talk about what Justices Breyer and Barrett said this week and the trouble with that Texas abortion case, abortion ruling. Then Bob Woodward and Robert Costa, the investigative reporters, have a new book, Peril, which reveals appalling new details about President Trump's efforts to overturn the election in January and also some alarming things that the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff may have done plus of course we will have cocktail chatter and a reminder dear listeners that we've got our conundrum show coming up and we need your conundrums what is a conundrum that you have faced in your life a, an ethical quandary a dilemma a moral a moral question we're going to talk about things like would you rather be a fish or a tree and other great conundrums. So please send us your conundrums at slate.com slash conundrum. Slate.com slash conundrum. The GabFest vaccine mandate has taken effect. You listeners have to get va- vaccinated, or else you have to listen to me spin out Stephen Breyer Fantasias every day. That's going to be the new mandate from the GabFest. After shunning mandates for months, President Biden has announced a broad mandate. So he's requiring federal employees and contractors to get vaccinated he's also requiring healthcare workers at federally funded institutions to get vaccinated and he has had osha the occupational safety and health administration come up with a rule that will require companies that have more than a hundred workers to demand vaccination or weekly testing in order to protect the workplace health and safety of other employees there he also doubled fines on people who violate mask mandates on things like airplanes So, Emily, it's pretty clear that this mandate on federal workers and those unfederally funded health clinics is legal, straight up, no problem. I mean, people may not like it, but it seems like Biden can do it. What is the legal rationale for the mandate on large employers?
1: The legal rationale for the mandate is that the federal government, through OSHA, through its occupational health and safety powers, sets tons of rules for workplaces. There are plenty of other vaccine mandates out there in the United States, in schools and at work, and lots of other conditions that the government sets for employers and employees to follow. And so the Biden administration wants to see this as a kind of routine use of its powers in that domain. And there is some precedent for this, but this is also in its scope, in its sweep, and introducing a new vaccine, pretty unprecedented. And so I expect legal challenges to Biden's vaccine conditions once this rule is finalized.
0: Do you think the chances that some Trump-appointed judge will enjoin it is high? I would bet it's like 100% that some Trump-appointed federal judge or appeals court will enjoin it. Could it be prevented from going into effect until it gets the Supreme Court Yeah.
1: I mean, there is a possibility of a nationwide injunction from one judge. An appeals court could then come in and lift it. I think the Supreme Court would hear the case pretty quickly because it's such a giant deal. In 1905, the Supreme Court upheld a vaccine mandate in Cambridge, Massachusetts. That was when Cambridge was worried about smallpox. That, however, is about the powers of the state government or actually a local government, right? It's not about federal power. I think it's very clear that a state or local government has the power to impose such a mandate. The question is whether federal powers run in this direction. And that, I think, it's just unsettled. I mean, it seems like the government should have this power, but I don't think we have a clear answer on the books.
0: What I was wondering is why we have not seen Democratic governors – employ this power, which, as you say, based on the 1905 Supreme Court decision, is they pretty clearly have. If if they want vaccination to be strong in their state, why not employ it? Is it just fear of backlash? But I I know why the red state governors aren't doing it. And I know that red states are the places where vaccines are, there's less uptake of vaccines. But I just don't understand why a governor in New York or governor in Illinois or governor in California doesn't do this.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it is taking on the people in your state who don't want to do this very directly, even if it's consistent with most people in your state. So, for example, in my state of Connecticut, the governor imposed a vaccine mandate on state employees, but not on all workers. I think the other thing is the question of enforcement is not a small one, right? I mean, you can choose between getting vaccinated or getting tested every week. And the idea that all these companies are then going to enforce these rules, that's like a pretty big thing to ask of them. One thing I'm really curious about is how you would ever successfully limit religious exemptions. I mean, when I was looking at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission language on religious exemptions in general, so in general with religion, um, if you have a sincerely held belief – Employers are supposed to make a reasonable accommodation, and I don't know necessarily that exempting people from the from a vaccine rule is a reasonable accommodation. But just like forget that for a second, a sincerely held belief. It can be something that's outside of any organized religion. It can be something unusual, uncommon that other people find irrational. Like that's the language from the EEOC, and I just started wondering how they're ever really going to like control this category. But wouldn't such
0: a person be subject to a Testing mandate? Yeah. Yeah,
2: which is why it's it's important that Emily pointed out that this is both testing and f- vaccines. So in other words, for the 80 million people covered by the OSHA regulation, you either have to get vaccinated or have regular testing, which is why it's not exactly a mandate. It's a it's a mandate to do one of the two, but it's not a mandate to get
1: vaccinated. It's like a condition vaccinated. more than yeah. a mandate.
2: Right? But I, th- I think the difference is that governors... You know, they'd have business interests in their states and they'd rather this all be voluntary rather than putting their arm on the businesses in their states, which might be all for it and which in might ca- some cases... Like it, I mean, the businesses that I talked to during the period that this was not that the mRNA vaccinations had vaccines hadn't been given full approval by the FDA, they were waiting for the FDA full approval, not for some necessarily health reason, but to sort of say, ah, now something has happened, we're going to mandate this.
0: Yeah, I suspect this will give cover to a whole bunch of businesses that would like to do this to do it, but then others will resist it and probably the other companies that do resist it and the people that do resist it there's not going to be massive fines and criminal penalties for the folks that don't go along with it it's just
2: and it also gives governor to cover governor, to Republican governors who want these who want vaccinations to happen in their state but so now they get to both bellyache about the federal overreach and they get to have something that's going to actually get more people in their states vaccinated. It's like when I And mean, also
1: gives cover to employees, right? I mean there must be some people who, you know, are uncomfortable identifying as a vaccinated person or pro-vax right now because it's become so tribal, but actually like somewhere in their heart they're like, well maybe this isn't such a bad idea. And now I have to do it, okay.
0: So I'm not so sure that there're that many people like that, Emily. I mean the numbers from the military do not give me, do not hearten me in any great way. So since late August, there's been mandatory vaccination in the military. And the numbers, it's 76% to 83% vaccinated. So they've added 7% in in about three or four weeks. It's good. It's good. But like 83% is not universal. Now, there's still time. But the the fact that an institution mandates something does not necessarily mean that that it's going to carry through, compel everyone to do it, or that everyone's really going to go along with it. I'm not not at all convinced that the vaccine resistors are going to be, that they're just waiting for one excuse, and they're going to go do it. I think that's a small number of people. But for the most part, I think the vaccine resistors, they've been given a lot of chances. They've been given a lot of evidence. They've been given a lot of Persuasive evidence and exhortation and money and opportunity. I'm not sure that just because there's now this mandate that it's going to be that much that all of them are going to be like, okay, well, fine.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, to your point, the numbers for the police forces in in a bunch of places are low and super resistance going on, and cities have backed down from requiring Which is, police to get just vaccinated. absolutely
0: fucking shocking. It's absolutely shocking.
1: Yes. Yeah. It's shocking uh, that that is be, not right, – that those because folks are not are just people, losing their jobs today. Yes. These are people who interface in a you know sometimes close physical way with the public. That is their job. It's yeah. it,
2: Also, we should remember that in the places where there's been the most pushback from governors, Mississippi being one of them, there are a couple other important things to know about Mississippi. One – Mississippi mandates vaccinations at the state level. So it's both this this um, argument against what Biden's doing is both a federalism question. Does the federal government have the right to do this? And then I like don't put your hands on my body. From the second piece, you know, don't infringe on my freedom. These states that are angry with Biden infringe on people's f- freedom with respect to vaccinations all the time. They force kids to get vaccinations. They force healthcare workers to get vaccinations. And there is no religious exemption at the state level. So, from a like I know my rights point of view, it, the argument seems incredibly weak. From a federalism point of view, they seem to be on potentially stronger grounds. Except for Congress gave OSHA the authority to regulate work- workplace safety. It's not that much of a stretch to suggest that a bunch of unvaccinated people in a workplace environment is not safe, and therefore OSHA has grounds to do this. So it seems like it is within the president's authority to do this uh, and that the state arguments are either weak or going to be unsuccessful.
0: Do you guys think the time for persuasion is over? Mm. I, I've become very depressed about the possibility of persuasion. I thought for years, for years, oh, my God, it's, it's only been going on <laughs> Wait, for months. Wait, it feels it just, like years. It just feels like decades. Wait, but,
2: do you mean with respect to the pandemic or with respect to everything?
0: I mean, I specifically with respect to the pandemic, maybe with respect to everything. But that that for months, it's, we've just been hearing, oh, people need to hear from you know trusted sources in their community. They need... They, you know, they, they need to be incentivized. They need this opportunity. Oh, it's the chance to win a lottery, the chance to be paid. Like there is just this huge set of people who are not going to do it. I was talking to a doctor friend and she was just so gloomy about how resistant the resistors are that at her clinic, just, they basically persuade nobody to take the vaccine. You know, these are doctors. These are doctors who are authority figures who are otherwise trusted by their patients. And so it feels to me like that that the this this like let's wait and let people make these smart choices on their own it's it's over and and I guess mandates are the only other option but i'm not, as i said, i'm not even sure that the mandates are going to work unless unless we're willing to put people in prison or fine them thousands of dollars
1: so should Biden consider an order that you have to have a vaccine to get on a plane, and should he also most include Americans include don't who take already, planes wait, Emily
0: what? Most Wait. Americans don't take planes.
1: Uh, okay, you're not letting me finish. Can I, I know, finish my I know. Other part I was just, I know,
0: I know you're not I would finish. Also, that was like, a conscious. like that's
1: dumb. Yes, they do get on planes.
0: Most Americans do not fly.
1: Okay, but a lot of people get on whatever. This is now Really? Like, you really want to have a database? Like, can we at least look up the statistics about how many people fly? But my other
2: question. How about you be allowed to finish what you're saying? Thank
1: you. My other part of my question is, why aren't we counting people who've had COVID? Since we know those people also have um, immunity, right? Perhaps a more comprehensive form of immunity, according to one study. We don't know if it's longer lasting immunity, but it certainly seems like it's lasting as long as these vaccines, which are in, like, the eight-month range for super effectiveness right now. I I really wonder about that choice, because wouldn't it have been a lot less politically divisive to also count those folks?
0: Yeah, for sure. Why didn't they? Too hard to know?
1: I mean, I don't know. I guess. How do you
0: prove that you had COVID?
1: Well, if you had a positive COVID test in any kind of medical record, I mean, I guess maybe you didn't keep it.
2: Well, or you people were positive and didn't even know it in some cases when they well, were. Well, then migrants. I don't
1: think those people would get to count. I think you would have to prove in some way that you had COVID. But if you could prove that you had COVID, why not include you in this group of protected people?
2: Can I ask you a question? What we think of the politics of this and presidential action, which is President Trump, who obviously did... At every instance where more could have been done, he did less, with the exception of um, Operation Warp Speed. Now, in this case, Biden has decided both for, for practical reasons, this seems to be the, you know, he's tried everything else, so he's having to try this, but also there's something where you want to get caught trying. Even though even though this may not be sufficiently um, effective, you want to look like you were pulling out every possible stop, and whether you think that matters as a long-term political matter or not.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess that will play well with the majority, right? Because the majority supports vaccines. I haven't seen the polling on the mandates or the vaccine condition, maybe we'll use that softer phrase, versus um, the vaccine itself. I mean, I guess I fear, though, that this is just going to play into every other, like, tribal red-blue divide and uh, the people who would give Biden credit or already on his side and like who's he really going to win over with this one he's just going to entrench the opposition
0: well but maybe it's the right thing um, the majority of Americans do not fly in, in any given oh, no, year
1: Oh, you won that data war hmm.
0: <laughs> but they do you could do
1: interstate travel more generally I mean not cars that would be impossible
0: wait sorry we need a better way to wrap this not, no, not. I don't know that.
1: we can end on you being right what could be better <laughs>
2: Um, I mean, is it as cut and dried as everybody seems to say? Because the president's the president's using three different powers here. He's using OSHA power. He's using the power of the purse. I think with the Medicare, basically making healthcare workers in place, state in institutions that receive Medicare and Medicaid money, and then yeah. he's using the, the power over the military and federal workforce. Um, are those all as cut and dried as the legal experts seem to think, Emily?
1: Well, there are three different powers being used for three different groups. You know, look, it's up to the Supreme Court. And so since the Supreme Court hasn't ruled on a vaccine mandate since 1905, and that one was Cambridge, Massachusetts, not the federal government, and we have different people on the Supreme Court now, and they were not so friendly to restrictions that state governments put on church, you know, church attendance and other religious organizations gathering, right? Right. And they also overturned the eviction moratorium from the federal government. That was a really big deal. I don't think – they're a wild card. We don't know quite what they're going to do.
0: GapFest listeners, if you become a Slate Plus member, you get bonus segments every week on the Gabfest and on other Slate podcasts. You also get – no ads, and you get to support the work we're doing here on the GabFest. It's only a dollar for your first month of membership, and you can sign up by going to slate.com/slash GabFest Plus. Our topic this week is daylight savings time, threat or menace. Can't wait to talk about that. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth we made this curse no. carved it in the blood on our backs we did not see we could not but she did and in the end what will I become? Senua Saga Hellblade 2 play it now with Game Pass it is Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win? like are you a fist pumper? extremely maddening things this week. What is happening?
1: (laughs) Yeah, they're sort of competing for the Emperor Has No Clothes Award, basically. So, you know... (sighs) Barrett wanted to make the point that the Supreme Court are not the, – the justices are not partisan hacks. They don't decide things based on politics. She decided to make this emphatic point at the opening of the Mitch McConnell Center at the University of Kentucky, a highly, a highly partisan political setting. I'm, I'm really – I just – I don't know. I find that really confounding. And obviously mockable, but I also find it equally confounding and mockable that Justice Breyer has written a whole book that's supposed to be about how courts are not partisan or political and is having to go around defending that thesis in the wake of the shadow docket decisions, which are as Justice Kagan said in a recent dissent, increasingly indefensible, especially the one we talked about regarding the abortion restrictions, really the almost complete abortion ban that's now gone into effect in Texas. What is going on here is that both Barrett and Breyer are clinging to this extremely narrow definition of politics. So, you know, I, I think they don't even necessarily have totally solid ground on this. for this, but their idea is like, We as justices aren't deciding things to benefit Republicans or to benefit Democrats because that's the party we come from. I mean, Bush versus Gore might be, uh, you know, a problem for that um, argument. And there are some other cases about voting rights and politics I would argue, are also a problem. But, you know, there are some cases they can point to. So, for example, the Republican majority on the Supreme Court did not go for President Trump's completely batshit bananas lawsuits over the election. So if that's your measure that, you know, politics are absent from the court, fine. What seems so strange and frustrating is to deny that politics affects judicial philosophy and that there is this straight line from who appointed you to what kind of judicial approach you are likely to take on the court. And they seem to want to keep those in two totally separate categories. And that is, I just don't, it's just very, very hard to see how you can, with a straight face, think that is true.
0: I want to dig into this, Emily. I've been, I was thinking about this, which is, I assume that Justice Barrett is sincere in her belief that she is not making decisions for political reasons, nor do Justice Kavanaugh or Justice Gorsuch or any of them think I'm making a decision for polit- political reasons. They, be- they, in their heart of hearts, believe, like, I have a, you know, I have a, I've been well-trained, I have a set of principles, I have a well-articulated jud- judicial philosophy, I'm following it, and it's leading me to decisions. Um, and I, I believe them. I think they are ruling sincerely. They, they, but, the, but what's happened is they're ruling sincerely in ways that ensure that they get the outcome that the people who support them want politically. So I'm curious, like, what is the grooming process? Is the grooming process that all the idiosyncratic lawyers who might be more heterodox in their decision making, the, the just Judge Posner's uh, types, they get called out? They don't get pulled up to the top. And that only the ones who are, like, going to go along and be norm, norm core justices get get elevated and get pushed into these categories? Or is it that everyone realizes, like, oh, I'm ambitious, I have to learn to read a room, and I'm going to develop a legal philosophy that leads to the outcomes that these people who make decisions want? Like, how does the grooming process work?
1: Well, the grooming process for the Supreme Court works in the first way you just described, especially on the right. I mean, this is what the Federalist Society exists for. But I think that it's true for Democratic appointees as well, that people have a record and that, yes, idiosyncrasies are not rewarded if you're talking about a Supreme Court birth. It's also important, I think, always to remember that... It is true that the vast majority of cases are not ideological in this highly contested, hot way. They don't have direct political implications for who wins elections or the balance of power, right? So judges and justices legitimately feel that most of their work is pretty far from what we think of as, like, hot-button political considerations. It's just that the cases that we all care about do, you know... In some way, affect elections that matter to our lives. They are inflected heavily by the connection, the straight line from who appointed you to what your judicial philosophy is likely to be. And so to us, it seems like a hoax to pretend otherwise.
2: And also, this isn't just bad punditry about the current state of things. I mean, um, Barrett. Participated in the selection process and in the political elements of the selection process, as did Kavanaugh, in a full-throated way. I mean, in other words, they know because they did it. I mean, if you look at the pictures, the Amy Coney Barrett event at the White House was such a political palooza that it caused a COVID outbreak because there were so many people there schmoozing and hugging and and grabbing. I totally the forgot soft,
0: that. Oh my God. The,
2: Grabbing the The soft middle of the protected class. And so, um, you know, she and and the photographs of her with Trump as the payoff and the and as we've talked about a million times on the show, the way in which the constituencies, particularly on the right, but also on the left, the right, because it has a more um, systematic, intentional effort to use judges to get people elected to the Senate and the presidency. It's knit into the modern electoral process. And Barrett participated in that. Totally. I mean, Lewis Powell, I believe it was, wouldn't show up for one of the events with Nixon because he didn't want it to look like there was any taint of the executive branch on the judicial when he was named. I mean, you have that option if you're a judge is to not, you know, maybe it's a little rude, but you don't have to participate in a big political ceremony that basically says to your political base, look, I'm paying this off. And we should remember the centrality of the Supreme Court in Donald Trump's election. Mitch McConnell says essentially, and plenty of other people agree with him, that it was Trump saying, I will name these specific kinds of people to the Supreme Court that ended up convincing a lot of members of his base to vote for him because they thought even if he does everything else terribly wrong, he will name people to the court and that will really matter.
1: I mean, the other thing that strikes me about the timing of these remarks, you know, one from the liberal moderate side of the court in Breyer and the other side uh, from the conservative from Amy Coney Barrett is that... They are worried about the court's institutional legitimacy, which they have the hugest stake in, right? So Justice Breyer called the Supreme Court a national treasure. He wants desperately to believe that that is the case. He's been devoting his life to it since 1993, right? These people are institutionalists at their core because that is the best thing for them. They are used to an atmosphere that is combative and sycophantic. They argue with their colleagues who they disagree with, and then their clerks and their Chambers are set up to be very coddling, lovely places in which they're treated as, like, geniuses, basically. That's what it's like to clerk for a judge. And I, I think that <laughs> that dynamic is a really powerful psychological one, and that's what we're seeing. And then when you play it out on the national stage and the rest of us, like, regular people watch it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us. So one thing I found irritating was Breyer was complaining about how reporters, when they cover the court or cover judicial appointments, mention whether the president who appointed you was a Republican or a Democrat. Well, yeah, we mention that because it is highly relevant to understanding, unfortunately, what you are likely to do. And that has become more salient. There is less heterodoxy of the kind David was talking about earlier. And that's not because like the reporters have created it. It's because it exists. We are reflecting a reality.
0: So many things were irritating about that Breyer thing, but the the one that was so funny in its in the way it was irritating was that him saying he intended not to die on the court. And it's like you can just hear God laughing. You can just hear the arrogance, the arrogance of a man of that age, a man who is well past the retirement age, who's well past the prime of of mental cognition, well past the prime of productivity. Being that confident in himself is infuriating.
1: And exactly a year ago, Justice Ginsburg did die on the court, and that was certainly not her intention either. Yeah,
0: no one intends to. Of course, you don't intend to. You. It is a tarnish on a you know what's been a very distinguished career of his, and he should. He he's really he's really blown it, man. For me, he's really blown it. Wow. Let me just say, I'm
2: not going to die on the court.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Which of the three of us do you think is going to die on the court? Emily's most likely. Maybe but, we'll
1: die on the gas Fest. That will be really. sad. Oh no! Oh no, I don't oh mean no. actually while we're taping. I mean, we need to Which figure of out us how would to. Die like... While
0: taping, I think I'm definitely most likely to die while taping. <laughs> Although it could be John. I could see John like tripping on something. He's always got like he's <laughs> what? surrounded by stuff. Um, um,
2: listeners, the the reason David is um has what I'm surrounded by in his brain is that I'm recording from our new apartment for the first time. Uh, and it is quite a setup I've got here. Um, so uh, that's what he's worried for my... Um,
0: and Emily, Emily's going to live to be 150 anyway. So okay. you'll, you might die on the Gav Fest, but it will be with, with, uh, with you know Rosenplatz's and Dickerson children. You'll be taping with them.
1: That sounds pretty good. I like all your yeah. children. Yeah.
3: <laughs>
0: Actually, let, let's close with this question, Emily, about the popular legitimacy. And is it actually true that the court depends on popular legitimacy? Are they at risk of losing it? And does, it, does popular legitimacy matter as much in a world where minoritarian rule seems to be uh, now the, just the fundamental practice of the right or the, it's, an accepted, it's an accepted worldview of the right?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a fascinating and, like, hugely important looming question for us. Historically, the Supreme Court has had to really dial it back when it gets far away from the American populace. So, you know, most famously during the New Deal, the court, conservative justices struck down major planks of FDR and the Democratic Congress's legislation. And then FDR threatened court packing, and the court effectively saved itself, Um A conservative justice switched sides and then they just started retiring and that kind of preserved the institution. We've seen that happen in other eras of American history, too. I think it's important also not to overvalorize the court. You know, the court is often not on the side of history um, in terms of, you know, even the most important. Basic fundamental aspects of protecting civil rights, the court has really failed a number of times. So if it wants to have this huge amount of power, right, this real judicial supremacy, which in a lot of ways, it's been more muscular about of late. There has to be some kind of intangible reckoning with the public and what it wants. And I think this huge question over the next few years is going to be how far out of sync this conservative majority will get with the public and how restive people will become and whether we'll start to have real questions about. The composition of the court, which obviously progressives have already started to ask, and also about this whole concept of judicial review. Does it make sense to put so much power over the Constitution in particular um, in the hands of judges, or do we want to set some kinds of limits so that the democratically elected branches have a greater say?
4: Hey, Slate listeners, I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gays Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash Hope to see you there.
0: I do feel like if I do die of an aneurysm during the Gat Fest we should still publish the show I mean that would be such good such good tape
1: maybe we'll we would dedicate that episode to you though
0: I hope you'd fucking dedicate (laughs) it to
1: me I said maybe I'm thinking Yeah, look, I don't
2: know look we really can't evaluate that question until we're faced with the moment itself so you know we'll definitely have a strong bias towards your point of view but
1: um, we'll consider it
3: seriously consider it
0: (laughs) A Bob Woodward book is always news, and so the revelations from Peril, the new book by Woodward and the Washington Post investigative reporter Robert Costa, are making headlines. According to Woodward and Costa, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, was so worried about President Trump doing something to endanger the United States, to wag the dog, that he effectively ordered the U.S. military to... uh, not directly follow particular kinds of Trump orders without consulting him or he he sort of heavily hinted like you guys better check with me first. He also gave calls to the head of the Chinese military just to say, hey, don't worry, things are under control here. We're not going to do anything stupid. Um there are a ton of other appalling details that have come out in the... in the. I have, none of us, at least none, I have not read the, this book. But I don't think any, either of you guys have read it yet. But the details that have come out in the press, including Trump's pressure on Mike Pence that Mike Pence almost succumbed to, as well as the Maleficent influence of Steve Bannon. So, John, what what caught your eye in these reports? And is it is it is what we're hearing news? Is it any of this news and surprising and should cause us to reassess what happened in the period between... The election and and the inauguration of President Biden. Some of it's news.
2: I mean, um, one thing we should just, as a starting principle, agree on, uh, or those who are most up in arms about the Milly revelations, who tend to be supporters of former President Trump, is everything in the book gospel because they're treating the Millie stuff as if it's the written word of the of our Lord. And if that's true, then you have to take the totality of the book and all the other things it says about the president, much of which. Make Millie's make the case for what Millie did uh, a really good idea. So it'll it'll be interesting to see if if there's a selective outrage outrage only at Millie, uh, no outrage at all the things the president did. Including sitting by while the rioters are at the Capitol and not doing anything about it, even when he was and we knew all of this, but it seems like you knew you learn a new important person called him and said, please do something. And this isn't just because they were waving the flags in his name and this riot was taking place at his behest as Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy pointed out, because people were lied to by the president, it wasn't just that. It's that he was the commander in chief and America was under assault by these people. So that sort of is a first question is whether you're really going to take everything uh, that's written in the book as the truth. And if so, um, it says some pretty shocking things about the president. The Milley thing we knew about the about the chain of command, what, what I understand from the reporting that Carol Lennig and Phil Rucker did, as well as Susan Glasser and Peter Baker was that Milley had this moment of of concern and basically went to his t- team and said, "Look, we're we're going to do everything by the book," which meant running things by him, running things through a process. The reason he wanted, the reason he cared about that, is because the president had tried to withdraw from uh, from Afghanistan. By, going, by circumventing the national security process, including the Secretary of Defense, including the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, including his national security advisor. So if the president, after he had lost the election, was willing to countenance the, the riot on the 6th of January and tried to withdraw from Afghanistan by sneaking it past all of his military advisors, that gives you a sense of why Milley might have said to his folks, hey, let's not have any end runs when it comes to pressing the nuclear button. What I didn't know was the call to the Chinese. Millie supporters are leaking that, you know, this was just a standard phone call that he has in the kind of military-to-military relationship that exists. I don't know. We have to get some more reporting to figure that out. I think the final point I would make is, This shouldn't be taken lightly, even if you're even if you think Donald Trump is, you know, was the worst president ever, because the whole point of the Trump presidency was that in shredding norms that existed for good reason, he'd put the American democracy in grave danger. And there is a norm of civilian control. And you don't want a situation which the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff gets to do and runs. Um, And so this question should be adjudicated seriously and thoroughly For the purpose of of asserting that norm and making sure it stays intact, even if the idiosyncrasies of this particular case turn out to be ones that you might say, well, this was an important exception to the rule. Final point is not all of the rules. I mean, generals don't have to do anything a president asked them to do. Remember, during the 2016 campaign, the president said he would order his generals to, to, to torture prisoners and... The military said, no, we won't. So, I mean, there are obviously instances in which insubordination is called for. And Whether this is one of them, uh, it requires some more information. But the principle at stake is a super, super important one and shouldn't be dismissed like so many norms were when they served President Trump.
1: I mean, I kind of think this was a coup. Like it was a very brief coup. It was after President Biden was elected, which makes a huge difference to me, especially because I think our transition periods are way too long. But like, you know, the military took authority to order war away from the commander in chief, the president, for some brief period of time. It makes me feel honestly a little better that um, Nancy Pelosi was on the phone with Millie too, because at least she's part of the elected government, even if she's on the other side of the partisan divide and representing a different branch. At least, like, someone was kind of in there. And I also feel like this is sort of exactly what we might have imagined the grownups in the room were doing, because so many people were concerned about Trump's incredibly erratic behavior in those days. And I think all your justifications make sense, John. But in the end like this is really if it's true a breach of the normal lines of authority and i just feel like we should uh maintain clarity about that
0: yeah Mm -hmm. it's really interesting because so the example that's cited is james schlesinger the defense secretary under nixon who cautioned who who sort of removed he 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 Insulated the military from Nixon in the latter stages of the Nixon administration on similar grounds that maybe Nixon was so erratic, but Schlesinger was a civilian. He was the Secretary of Defense. He was served in the executive branch, and he was not himself a military officer. And so, and in 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 actually in in the Woodward and Costa book, they also cite the example of Gina Haspel, who's the head of the CIA, who's also kind of in in on the Millie, Like we got to watch out for this guy, but Haspel is not she is not military she is a, an executive appointee is there a useful distinction between a military officer doing this and somebody who is works in the executive branch doing this is that is that truly the important distinction
1: i mean maybe not i thought the Haspel information was pretty explosive as well
0: really but I, I mean not I mean, isn't can this fire the 20 her. isn't this the 25th oh, amendment isn't this a 25th too? amendment he can't he could right he could fire Haspel.
1: Right. Can he fire Millie?
0: You could fire Milley as the chair of the Joint Chiefs. He can't fire yeah. him as a general, I don't think.
1: Right. But, I mean, that's Actually, still maybe a he lot can. of power. But this is, like, some sort of weird, like, made-up sub-Rosa 25th Amendment. The 25th Amendment no. does not say, like, the director of the CIA and the chairman of the Joint no. Chiefs of Staff get to come in and decide <laughs> Right.
2: This. In fact, it's it's super impossible to do as a as a bulwark against doing this too easily i mean it's very hard to invoke the 25th Amendment, as everybody learned
0: no i understand it's very hard to invoke the 25th amendment i guess what i'm saying is that if you say that what milley did is categorically wrong and is an absolute and what haspel did is categorically wrong and a huge threat to the presence of democracy you end up in a kind of unitary executive theory of government which is that the president has effectively total control over government and these people who have risen to levels of of importance and authority, but who weren't elected to them and who aren't the president, basically cannot subvert the president, even if the president is acting in an incredibly dangerous way.
1: And I'm not sure I want to get to a unit. I mean, isn't the issue how they react, how they subvert?
2: So
0: then then this
2: really interesting question comes up, which is given the partisan nature of things now, where... You see parties and particularly in this case, the Republican Party, where people who have um, condemned Donald Trump at one point in their career quickly come to his aid, whether a resignation has any force anymore, because the old idea of resignation is someone of stature resigns on principle and it shocks the political system into responding and saying, Oh, my gosh, there is an important value at stake and we can't let this thing go forward. So important is this thing that that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, resigned. But that doesn't exi- That doesn't work anymore in our current politics. You can have the leader of both the House and the Senate blame the president for a riot. And now essentially the party is disappearing that and having the person who was blamed for the riot as oh. the leader of the party. We we also have. Let's
1: think about the Justice Department in the waning days, because actually, Barr left. He didn't noisily withdraw, right? To use the lawyer phrase, with what you're supposed to do if you think like there's a corruption in uh, the case in front of you. He just resigned. But then Trump tried to get rid of Jeffrey Rosen, who was the Barr deputy, who was in control of the Justice Department in those last few weeks, and he failed. Like, he didn't do it. It was seen as too scandalous for him to just kick Rosen out. Like, that whole mess did not happen, even though Rudy Giuliani was, and now we've learned, if it's true, from Woodward and Costa, Steve Bannon were, you know, not whispering in Trump's ear, but yelling in his ear. So I do think, John, that in those waning days where there was such a short time frame left and people could see just how potentially out of control Trump was, that there would have been real punch to those resignations. I'm not saying that but, in the moment that was the best but, answer. This was a very pragmatic but, set of steps to take. I'm just saying that, like, if you're really going by the traditional lines of governmental but, authority, this does not seem like how you're supposed to do well, it. But it's, well,
0: but so so it, it was skin of our teeth that they, they didn't get rid of Rosen. Yeah. And I think what you're saying is you're saying that if they had succeeded in getting... I mean, the logical chain you're talking about still requires some person to stand up and effectively tell the president, I'm not going to obey your orders.
1: Oh, for sure. Absolutely.
0: It rec- at which Millie and Haspel are effectively doing. It still requires some person who remains— But they did preemptively,
1: in- right? Like, if Millie really went around that room and said to every military official there, like, the nuclear codes go through me, you know, whatever that drama was, If if something like that is true, is that— really what we want from our constitutional order, well, right? Because to, if Trump was going to give an order like that, wouldn't we be better off having the whole thing play out in public and, like, Millie resigns, and it's, like, a big thing, and we know what happened, and we're well, faced with Millie the Well, But Millie resigns, and then somebody
0: else be. fires the nuke? I don't know. I don't well, know. We're,
2: we're also out of our depth here in terms of what the actual chain of action is between when a president issues an order like this and it gets carried out.
3: Right, I mean, absolutely absolutely it has to go through the military indication. anyway.
2: Right. And so it may very well be the case that all Millie was saying is, and remember, this is in the short recent history of the president circumventing the national security apparatus um, in order to get out of Afghanistan, which, by the way, is its own thing. The president's now claiming that, oh, Joe Biden messed up with Afghanistan. He wanted (laughs) to—President Trump wanted to withdraw faster and with less planning. But anyway— the, the if, if Millie was, in fact, just saying, hey, let's just be clear on what the actual plans are for how we do this, which are time-honored and bipartisan, and let's make sure we do those, if this goes forward, is far different than saying, yes. hey, no matter what order yes. he gives you, don't, don't listen to it. Totally um, fair. Right. So, yeah. I mean, there's
1: a way in which the Woodward and Costa account may be kind of overly dramatizing what were sort of like, you know, a sense of urgency about relatively normal procedures. I, I can't really tell.
2: Yeah. And I, also, I, it, go ahead,
0: David. I just want to note that I do, despite my kind of conflating Haspel and Millie and James Schlesinger, I actually think it's different when a, an active duty officer is doing something than it, when an executive branch official who's appointed by the president is, is similarly resisting or subverting. I think the subversion by, by Gina Haspel is less troubling than, than a similar amount of subversion by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff because of the the need to keep civilian control over the military.
2: Can, can I just say again with the revel, the overall revelations of this book, um, if we treat them with the veracity that this Millie thing is being treated, which I think, you know, we should think through exactly what's being reported on all of this stuff. But it's extraordinary to remember that it got this bad.
1: Yes. And that yes.
2: it got that bad at the Justice Department and that, People were begging the president to step up and do his job on the 6th, yep. and he's the leader of the party. Lindsey Graham calls him the captain of the Republican Party. Yeah, um, Nikki, you- Nikki Haley has said she won't run if he decides to run. Mitch McConnell said he would vote for him if he's the party's nominee. I mean— And he's created a market in which all people who seek success need to behave the way he deems is the right way to behave. I mean, it's not just whether he – it's not just his behavior in office. It's that he is the leader of the Republican Party in America having done all of this. And with the consent of all the people in that party who know he did all
0: of this. Yeah, it's incredible, the idea. It's incredible.
1: Hey, shout out to Dan Quayle, who (laughs) I love the part that he is playing in this drama. So like Mike Pence, according to this book, is torturing himself because Trump is putting all this pressure on him to refuse to certify the election as the vice president. There is one line, um, at least in the CNN account of this book, that I cannot believe Trump really said, which is, I won't be your friend anymore, Mike Pence, if you don't do this for me, which is like just way too Mr. Rogers for me to actually <laughs> swallow. But in any case, according to this book, Pence, in his moment of anguish, calls Dan Quayle, former vice president, and is like, help, help. And Quayle is like, dude. You can't do this and Pence is like you don't understand and Quell is like yeah I do I know the law go listen to the parliamentarian Thank yeah. you Dan Quell
0: I know who who thought we'd be <laughs> clanging the bells for Dan Quell here in 2021 that was not on my that was not on my 2021 bingo card No
1: me neither And yet uh, and,
0: God and Pence was so close to to capitulating though Whoa. Oh my god apparently
2: That's, and again, that's also uh, quite extraordinary.
1: Well, it does give you the sense if all of this is true, even if it's only like 60% true, that as you were pointing out, in all these different parts of the government, the system held, but like it also shook, right?
2: Oh, Oh my my God. God. It it shook and rattled to, to like the last bolt in the basement.
1: Yeah.
0: And it might not again. Let us go to cocktail chatter when you're sitting, having a bolt in the basement. A bolt in the basement is just a shot of whiskey with another shot of whiskey on top of it.
1: (laughs) It's a hat on top of a hat.
0: Uh, What are you going to be chattering about, Emily?
1: My chatter this week is about a story in the Wall Street Journal about Facebook and Instagram, which should be jaw-dropping, except that it is also just part of such a pattern at this point. So the story is called Facebook Knows Instagram is Toxic for Teen Girls, a company documents show. It's by Georgia Wells, Jeff Horowitz, and Deepa Sitharaman. And what this piece shows is that Facebook has had research for a while showing that the way in which girls in particular feel like they have to live up to other people's expectations about how they look has had a real effect on their depression and anxiety levels. And, you know, when I was writing about bullying for the book I published in 2010, this whole question of teenager self-image, the deleterious effects that social media can have on kids, loomed so large. And when I went and spent a day at Facebook at that point, they were Not in total denial about this, but really dismissive that they had um, a real role to play in preventing these kinds of ill effects. And I think what you just see over and over again is that they dismiss the problems that they are very much a part of. And you know, when Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, was asked about children and mental health, this is at a congressional hearing in March 2021, he said the research that Facebook has seen shows that people can have positive mental health benefits in connection with social media. And we've just seen, you know, this kind of pattern where Facebook finds out from its own internal researchers because there are some people there who are concerned about what the company is doing, that there are these problems, and then the company kind of walks away or tries to bury that research because it's not in line with its own public image. And um, it's uh, it's an alarming pattern.
2: Emily, can you dispel uh, what some people might say, which is, oh, well, this is what Glamour and Cosmopolitan did, you know, for g- girls growing up in the 70s and 80s. Just explain to them why this is so very different.
1: So, you know... I think about my own growing up, because I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and it was totally true that you would look at magazine images and realize that they had nothing to do with your own body and your own face. And, like, that was – you noticed. Um, But the idea that it's girls themselves um, posing and being so just – Having this feeling that they're comparing themselves to their peers, that they're not measuring up, that they're supposed to be creating this perfectly curated set of images about themselves and presenting their lives in this romanticized way, I just think it would have crushed me.
2: <laughs> well, and it would, have, it would have crushed me. I mean, this isn't, not, this isn't just about girls. I mean, I can see how it plays out in uh, the teenagers I'm uh, adjacent to. And I know how it would have destroyed me, which is not about necessarily body image, but about FOMO and about, you know, the whole process of growing up is the messy creation, uh, curation of your own life. You you want to make sure you have lots of weird, clumsy, messy identities so you can figure out which is the right one to have. No one emerges into adolescence perfectly formed. So it's always going to be fraught with all of this imperfection. And to create a thing that injects you with doubt about your imperfection on a minute-by-minute basis at this time when you are both sensitive and need to be experimenting with your identity. And by which I mean everything from am I a comic book person or like a Star Wars person or a like math geek or whatever I want to be and think I am, or like a generous person who, who you know donates my time at the church. All of that gets ruined by this injection of doubt at just the wrong time. Yep.
1: And it's all, or at least on Instagram, I think in particular, it's so much about physical appearance and like who you're socializing with, not about like all the other attributes of, you know, your development, your brain, your, you know, accomplishments, your interests that you were just talking about. I mean, obviously, social media can feed those things too, but this particular aspect of it, it just seems wholly unsurprising that it's having a toxic effect. And, and the Facebook doesn't care.
0: Yeah, very well said, Emily. I I see this weirdly. There are some adults who behave like teenagers on Instagram, and it's so alarming to see people who are leading these lives where they're which are they're so manicured and curated, and where they're they're posing. And if you know anything about their own actual life, and you realize like well, this is not this is not really connected to wh- who you actually are or what your unhappy family life is actually like what are you doing with this it's really sad and i if, it, look, if it's that way and for adults like imagine what it is for a 16 year
2: old i know you don't think i'm out clubbing every night but in
0: fact that is the new
2: lifestyle we have embraced <laughs>
1: somebody is impersonating me on Instagram they're not like causing any terrible problems they're just like posting as me and I uh filed a complaint to Instagram like a year ago and they've never gotten back to me so I just literally can't get onto Instagram like it's just not a thing in my life because I can't have my own account back and so I literally never log on unless I'm being my husband just to check something
0: guys I'm sure there are people who listen to the show who work for Facebook or Instagram. You've just heard Emily Bazelon, like (laughs) literally one of the leading journalists in the United States, complained a year ago to you that she's being being doppelganged on Instagram and you haven't, can you just listen and respond? I I guess I should go do something
1: more serious about this. You know, there's just this part of me that like thinks I'm better off without Instagram, but I guess it's not great that someone is pretending. Actually, there are two different accounts, both with my name.
2: This is a thing. I've had a, People have periodically alert me to accounts that are like, you know, dash J Dickerson or whatever. And people, uh,
0: those people, they have such unsophisticated knowledge of the American presidency. It's really embarrassing <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes they like mistake Rutherford Hayes. They mistake Rutherford Hayes and Franklin. They Sears, leave out the B. Just,
1: it is outrageous.
0: It's outrageous, outrageous. John, what's your chatter?
2: Uh, my chatter is about uh, Harlem Shuffle, which is the new uh, Colson Whitehead book. Um, I'm uh, obviously a fan of his work and his writing, um, and I uh, it came out this week, and I um, am a fan of this book as well. Which had it seems to me one of the best things you can say about a book, which is that when I read it this summer, um, I both was turning the pages as fast as possible to both find out what was going to happen, and also it's a heist novel, but also because it has this. Really interesting, really interesting examination of power and who has power and the the public power and the private power. But then also not wanting the book to end because it was great company for the period of time that I was reading it. So I recommend oh, it to those of you. I out just there.
0: literally put it on my my book list. So excited for that. My chatter is about a, some really basically good news about. College. I'm sorry, that's
2: not allowed here.
0: Oh shoot. <laughs> Uh, it's it's about college students and their drug and alcohol consumption and the big new report, Monitoring the Future, from the National Institute on Drug Abuse, which, interestingly, the first story I ever wrote for Slate back in 1996 was about this very report, about Monitoring the Future. Uh, but their new report came out, and it found a significant drop in alcohol use by college students and alcohol abuse by college students and a significant rise in marijuana use. And it's hard not to see this as just basically good news that if there's one public health measure that you could take that would benefit to people later in life, benefit to society, it would probably be reducing the amount that that you drink as a young person, which then becomes you drink less as an older person, you less risk of alcoholism and all the dangers that come with it. And if that comes, if it, if the the payoff, if the if the compensation is that we have to have people who smoke a lot more marijuana or somewhat more marijuana, I think that's a risk worth taking. Not, and I do. I mean, there's a, also a significant rise in daily use of marijuana, which is worrisome. Like that's not good. Like the, there's there's been a rise from about 38 percent of college students use marijuana to 44 percent, and then daily use has risen from five percent to eight percent in the last five years. Daily use of marijuana, not healthy. Don't do it, kids. But like if if like, you know, more kids are just doing, you know, getting high a little bit instead of getting drunk, that is almost certainly good news for the world.
2: Can I ask this question, which is because you can smell marijuana, I am in a constant, basically in New York City, everywhere you walk, you're always smelling marijuana. And um, I mean, even if it's just inside your living room. Um, And um, if you're walking through New York, you're smelling it everywhere. And so the Because it, 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 I'm in touch around it more. I think, oh my God, who are these people who are just constantly smoking pot all day long? But there are people who are drinking all day long, and you just don't smell it. Is that? Do we think it's roughly equivalent the number of basically day drinkers, or or are people just? Is there a different way of consumption that creates a more of a daily? I don't know because it's everywhere.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think yes. I think the answer is there are lots of day drinkers. I just was talking to. somebody who I didn't know was an alcoholic and they were telling me like that they drank the amount that they were drinking. I was like, wow, I never would have known that. Right, uh, right, yeah. So I, I think it's, it's a, you can keep it pretty secret. Also, you can keep, you can if you use edibles, like edibles or not, yeah. I, I don't smoke marijuana because I don't know how to inhale anything, but uh, except oxygen into my lungs. And uh, the truth.
3: <laughs>
0: but, uh, pure, but, everything is very but pure. that Edibles enters, don't so blocks, really smell.
1: Plot's physique.
2: Yeah, I guess I was thinking, I, obviously, the, as the son of an alcoholic, I understand the day drinking thing. But uh, but as a, I guess the function, I guess what I'm describing is essentially functional alcoholism, which is the day drinking of people who right. just do it as a matter of course, the way people seem to smoke pot as a matter of course.
1: Well, my observation about pot, the smell of marijuana surrounding us, wafting everywhere of late, is how long it seems to last in the air. You know, like I walk by the park yeah. or through the park. No, in my no neighborhood. matter how
2: much lysol you spray in the room. Yeah.
1: No, I mean, I just like outside. Like I'm outside yeah. in our park, yeah. like our big sprawling park in New Haven, yeah. which I love. And there, I can totally smell marijuana. And I'm like, huh, I wonder who's around. And like, there's no one with an eye. Like, I can't see anyone. Right. And I'm like, wow, how long is this like hovering for? It's right. just, it's interesting. I wouldn't have called that outside.
0: Right. The other, the other. Uh, interesting data point I want to point to from this report is just that the use of hallucinogenic drugs has risen dramatically. It dramatically, it basically doubled from 2019 to 2020 by college students, from five percent to ten percent.
1: How much do we attribute that to the Michael Pollan effect of his books? Uh,
0: college students don't read anything, as far as I can tell. So They, well, probably they might haven't have read, read Michael a Pollan.
1: tweet about Michael Pollan's <laughs> and, book, though.
2: And what are they? What are what are they uh,
0: using? Uh, anyway, let us know college kids. Let us know college kids. All right. Uh, we have been collecting your great chatters as well. You've been tweeting them to us at Slate Gabfest. We'd also encourage you to please give us your conundrums by going to slate.com slash conundrums and giving us a conundrum there. But uh, you have sent us chatters and we had a bunch of really good ones this week. And our chatter this week comes from Jim Evans.
3: Here is a bittersweet cocktail chatter. Dr. Nadia Chowdhury is a neuroscience professor at Concordia University, Montreal, and she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer in 2020. She has shared her journey via Twitter, including visits with her son and moon, terms she uses for her son and husband. She is now in the Palliative Care Ward at McGill University Hospital, where she provides insights, thoughts, examples of her artwork, and views of the upcoming part of her world with incredible courage grace, and warmth. As she faces her next phase, she decided to shuffle in the ward hallway to help raise money for scholarships for students in neurosciences, especially for students from underrepresented groups. As of today, September 14th, nearly 7,200 people have donated over $472,000.
0: The videos of, of Dr. Chowdhury are really moving. She's done something wonderful with... with these last days that is our show for today the gap fest is produced by jocelyn frank our researchers bridget dunlap gabriel Roth is editorial director of slate audio june thomas is managing producer and alicia montgomery is executive producer of slate podcasts please follow us on twitter at, at slate gap fest. tweet your chatter to us there and also please give us your conundrums at slate.com slash conundrums for emily Bazelon and john dickerson i'm david Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Daylight Savings comes to an end soon. I thought it was this weekend. That's why we were talking about it, but it's not this weekend. I don't know why we're talking about it this week, but whatever. It's coming to an end soon. Uh, And so when Daylight Savings comes to an end, we will set the clock back so it will get dark earlier in the afternoon, in the evening, and light earlier in the morning daylight saving time which is the summer months is when you set your clocks forward and it's gets light later in the morning and gets dark later at night uh there are so many different discussions about where the origins of it who is supposed to benefit does it save energy does it not save energy like what you know why don't we have daylight saving time all the time there's it's it's like it gets very confusing when you start to read about it but we're going to talk about is daylight saving time or bad? Should we be on one time all year round? Is it nice to split it up? Should we always be on daylight saving time? Should we always be on standard time? What should we do?
1: I have one feeling about this, and it might be at odds with all the research or even what I would think if I knew more about it. My one feeling is I really don't like how dark it gets early in the winter. I really don't like that. I'm not a person who gets up super early, so I don't really care about what's happening between five and seven in the morning. But I care a lot about what's happening between four PM and seven PM in the afternoon and evening and I find it just depressing in the winter that it's dark early. So for that reason I would like to stick with what is that standard time?
0: Day- no, that's daylight saving oh, all the time.
1: I would like to stick with daylight savings yeah. time to avoid that one particular effect.
0: Yeah, you know, coming at you from a morning person, screw you. Right. Like, I really don't like it that it's, that it's dark in the morning all the time. I would like it to be dark, you know, less time in the morning because I get up early and I don't like living my early part of my day in the dark. So, so would you like to have... I would like have... it to be standard time all the time. All the no, time. I actually, no, I don't. I think the problem, you, the problem you have is not a problem with daylight saving time or standard time. You have a problem with the earth, The way and living in a northern latitude. I do have a
1: problem with the Earth, maybe with the whole galaxy. Actually,
0: yeah, it's not the problem is there's just not enough light in winter. Like that is the problem for all of us. And you either have to have your more light in the morning or more light in the afternoon. You can't have both because the stupid Earth is tilted. Do you think though that at the equator?
1: Okay, true, that is a larger problem. But I wonder. I mean, there's really no way to answer this, but I'm going to ask anyway. Do you think at this point in
0: GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today.
1: I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press one. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press two.